0: Back in the day, when I was in my, I don't know, late, mid, mid early to mid-20s, in the late 80s, right, the, near the end of Ronald Reagan's presidency, when you made a phone call, some of you are going to relate to this, some of you will not. When you made a phone call, you did not know who was going to answer, nor did the person answering know who was calling. The younger generation has no concept of this. Everybody has their own phone. So when you call somebody, you know who's going to answer. It's actually shocking in today's world if somebody other than the person you called picks up the phone. You don't even know what to do with that. But there was a day when the first 10 or 15 seconds of a phone call was trying to figure out whether you had the right person on the phone. That's just the way it was. Very unlike today. Today, you know. You know who exactly you're calling. You know who's going to pick up. And you know who's calling you. Whether it's a voice call, a text, or an email, you know before you even hear anything or read anything who it's from. It's very clear. In the the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the ruler of creation is calling. And who answers isn't who he expected it to be. He expected flourishing human to answer uh, but he found uh, malnourished humanity and the ruler of creation is questioning whether they even recognize him who's calling <laughs> apparently god uses an old fashioned phone in his community in his communications with humanity listen this is in revelation chapter 3 these are the words of the amen the faithful and true witness the ruler of god's creation says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You say to me, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. And I do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, Naked. God's saying, I called and expected a deeply alive, fully actualized humanity to answer, but instead, you're you're blasé and gross. You define yourself as rich and self-sufficient. But if you could see yourself from an eternal perspective, you would be embarrassed about how sad you are. God, God is, he's, he's painting a picture here. If I could switch metaphors. Imagine that you've walked into one of the biggest, most ornate, and crowded banks in New York or London. And you're strutting across the floor as though you are all that in a bag of chips, and you have no clothes on. But you're acting like it's all cool and it's all good, and you are awesome. Everybody is watching you, but you are completely misunderstanding why they're watching you. You think it's because you're awesome. God says it's because you're naked. You don't realize, you walk right over to the counter and you slap down your piles of money. As if to say, I'm even more amazing than you think. And people are looking and going, that is small, multicolored money. I'm pretty sure that's monopoly money. You're naked and you don't have anything, but you think you're dressed to the nines and you're rich. And God says, if you could see it from my perspective. This is uh, an overdone metaphor that I'm painting for you here, but I think you understand. We are often enchanted by the things of this world. We're enchanted with ourselves. And it's to our own eternal embarrassment and detriment But look, God is on your side. He's on my side. He says, as Revelation writer continues, I counsel you, the ruler says. I I beg of you. I, I teach you. I admonish you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. Truly rich. And you could have white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness if you would come to me, I would make you truly rich and you would not be naked, you would not be ashamed, and I would put salve on your eyes so that you can see. He's like, Look, I, I know what you think you are, but you're not. I created this universe and you. I know who you are, but I can provide you true worth and meaning, unrockable dignity, and a life. Clarity that you can get nowhere else. It is not a problem for me. It is easy for me. If you would come to me, I counsel you, come to me. He says, of course, your part is challenging. It's easy for me. It is hard for you. He says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Look, my part is easy. Your part requires a humble willingness to change. The ruler is telling us you don't get better just by believing in God. You don't get better by asking for help. It is upon us to respond to God, to respond to His initiative to to be grateful for his gift of sight and to be humble and to repent and to change. He wraps up his phone call this way. Here I am. It's me. I'm here on the phone. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me, if you can recognize my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me, I, I, the ruler of the universe, will come to you personally into the most intimate spaces of your life, share a meal and give you what your heart longs for. The ruler of all things asks you and asks me, "Do you know who's calling?" He also asks, "Do you know who you are?" this reality. In the end, this is the book of Revelation. This is the book of Revelation. This is, you know, this is sort of the summation of the end. The core questions of life from the beginning to the end are about identity. Who is God? Who are you? Arguably, the entire Bible narrative is about identity. So it's no surprise that identity is at the heart of everything we've read, learned, and studied for an entire year, which, by the way, I've been thinking I've been exaggerating, like how long we study Mark. You know, I go, "Hey, we're still studying Mark." When I went back to the first message this week, it was October of last year. <clears throat> That's pretty much a year. Just want to let you know I didn't, I didn't realize that. It's no surprise that what's at the heart of everything we've read, learned, and studied for almost entire year about Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And we are going to take like a six-month break and come back to a four-part series around Easter. So it'll be a whole year by the time we're done. We're going to take a break. Everything that we've learned is about identity. We're closing in fast on the end of the book here. And not unexpectedly, the story turns dark as it comes full circle to the question of Jesus' identity. Right here we are in Mark chapter 15. It's very early in the morning. The chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. This is the whole power structure of the Jewish people. They are working together, which is unheard of, but they are working together, maybe for the first time ever, making their plans to take Jesus down. So they bound Him up, led Him away, handed Him over to the ruler of the Jews, to which Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? You see, identity. Who who are you? Are you the king of the Jews? He's heard that he's the king of the Jews. They've referred to him as the king of the Jews. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, Yeah, you've said so. He's not saying, Because you said so, I am. Jesus is saying, Yes, it is as you have said. But Pilate has no idea, really, what he's saying. He doesn't get it. I don't know if he could. If Jesus were to extrapolate, if you read into his words, he would be saying, yes, it is as you've said, but I am not a king as you understand it. I'm I'm an eternal king. I'm the king of not only this world and all that's in it, not some cordoned off geographic faction of it like you suggest. I'm king of all of the world and all of the unseen world. Might be better put that say, I am the king of all hearts and minds who would Take Me as their King. I am in control of all of it. Have created all of it. I am the King of the hearts and minds of all of humanity. I'm the King of everything. The King of true life. I'm the King of a life that flows from the Creator Himself. I'm not the King of a life that is based on the short-lived rewards of the creation. But yes, He says, as you say, I am the King of the Jews. The chief priests, uh, reading on, have accused Him of many things. So again, Pilate asks Him, are you going to answer this? Are you going to answer them? You see everything that they are accusing of you, and Jesus still makes no reply. What Pilate says to Jesus when He says, yes, I am the King of the Jews, is, well, your people don't get it. You hear what they're saying? doesn't sound like they think you're the King of the Jews. Are you going to correct them? He didn't answer. Why didn't Jesus answer? It was true. He was the King of the Jews. He was the King of the world. Why didn't He answer? It's because Jesus knows what is true right now in history. And that is that He is utterly alone. It isn't worth trying to turn the crowd now. He's been virally canceled. He has. It existed back then. It's why he stayed under the radar for as long as he could. Because he knew as soon as it was possible, the power structures would chime in and stir up the masses to reject him. He's been virally canceled. He knows it. And not just by the masses. His closest companions are right then and there turning their back on Him. Jesus, the Peter is disowning Him. And it won't be a mistake in disowning. He'll do it three times intentionally. Yeah, sure, yeah. Oh my gosh, the crowd's so being whipped much. up, deceived by the so full power structure. And the crowds will be shouting for I'm His death momentarily. His closest and, uh, confidants with all of our and the unnamed, uncountable people together. that so He's touched so, in so, so many ways have been deceived and they've turned against Him. He is utterly alone. By all angles, it is a brutal failure. There's no sense trying to turn them now. Everything he could do has been done. Mark goes on. It was the custom at the festival, the Jewish at the Jewish festival, for Pilate, for the Romans, to release a prisoner kind of in... In a metaphoric way, along with the Jewish festival, which is crazy, but they did it. Thank you. They would give up a prisoner. They would, they would, they would, you know, pardon a, a person. And a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. And the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Hey, can you? Will you pardon someone for us? And Pilate. You know, instinctively thinks what, and he asks, "Okay, do you want me to release the King of the Jews?" You, certainly, you want me to release the King of the Jews. And Pilate was no dummy; he he knew it was within the self-interest of the chief priests and uh, to hand over Jesus to him. He knew they were doing what they was best for them. So Pilate's like, "Okay, this is a chance for the crowd." To call for his release and end this power-hungry oppression that they live under in their own people. You want me to, you want me to you want me to release the king of the Jews? But they didn't. They said, release Barabbas. A murderer. He says, okay. Paul goes, what? What do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? You want me to throw him in the, in the clank for no. Crucify him. We, we would rather you just do our dirty work and just crucify him. Just take him out. Pilate is perplexed. What why? What what grounds? What, what has he done? What has he committed? They don't even answer. Have you seen this going on in our world today? Don't even answer it. Doesn't, it doesn't matter what the truth is, just crucify him. So Pilate releases Barabbas, has Jesus flogged, knocks him down, keep, gets him out of commission, so it's a lot easier to get him to a cross and crucify him. This is, this is where we are. How do we get here? How, how does the one so clearly established in his identity as the Son of God end up alone and sentenced to death? How is it that the one who offers us eternal gold, make us truly rich, deeply dignified, absent shame and guilt, clothed with beauty, rooted in peace, how is it that he would be rejected? How is it possible that the one who was publicly affirmed by God as his Son, do you remember this? Mark chapter 1. Paralleled in the other Gospels, the heavens tear open, the Spirit comes down, and a voice from heaven says, this is My Son. People heard it. Lots of people heard the voice of God saying, this is the One. I am well pleased. How is it possible that this One who has been publicly proven, since that point we've studied it day in and day out, chapter after chapter, He was completely, utterly, perfectly obedient to God. Even the temptations of darkness at their full force could not derail him from his loyalty to God. How is it possible that the one who has been publicly affirmed, publicly proven, untiring in compassion, astonishing in his grip on truth, declared by God as the one to follow? You remember this from Mark chapter 9? It's symbolic of Mark chapter 1. Again, a voice from heaven. once said this is my son who am I and well pleased says this is my son follow him listen to him at first it's an application and a declaration of who he is and then is a declaration to all of humanity that we should follow that person because of who they are how is it Possible that this proven, obedient, selfless, powerful, compassionate Son of God would, when it's all said and done, be flatly rejected and destroyed. And that the people of God would choose another and a bad other. How oh, is it possible that they would pick a power hungry insurrectionist and murderer over Jesus? I got a few answers, and they're all pretty much the same. Because we all do, that's what we do. We don't know who we are. We don't know how much we need Jesus, how poor and naked we are, and to what extent we will go to win a game of monopoly. We don't know who God is. We don't believe He is almighty and fully capable. And we don't choose Jesus because He doesn't promise to change the circumstances that threaten to harm us. He calls those of us who would seemingly have no reason to change to apologize and change. That's why we don't choose Him. Because He won't do what we want Him to do. And He asked me to do what I don't want to do. He asked me to see what I don't want to see and to change what's very hard to change. Remember what the ruler said to humanity on the phone. I am rich. He says, You say you're rich, you've acquired wealth, you don't need anything. But you're poor, naked, pitiful, blind. Buy from me gold. This is all about identity. Jesus' way is humble, sacrificial. It's a way that elevates the win of the other, even the enemy over self. A way that given a route to prominence doesn't take it. A way which has its glorious end in the next world, not this one. We don't want any of that. He's not calling followers into the most powerful option of changing the world and bringing you great rewards. So we don't choose him. He's calling us into the most powerful only option to actual change a pathway to actual truth, to actual inner peace, peace, to an eradication of shame and guilt. But it's a pathway that requires something of us that we don't want and doesn't give us what we want. Jesus is rejected every day because Jesus' way requires Humility to see something most are not willing to see. He's rejected every day because his way does not lead to what we are naturally in pursuit of. Jesus serves liver and onions and green beans because it's very, very good for you and water. He doesn't deliver pizza and cake and soda. Who wants liver and onions? There's only a couple of you and you're just strange. (laughs) And Jesus says, How many of you want to follow me? And there's not many and they're strange. Jesus is rejected every day because his way requires prayer more than action. Jesus is rejected every day because he requires you to rest rather than to burn yourself out. Jesus' way is rejected every day because his way often feels to lack any measurable progress. Jesus is rejected every day because it lets people off the hook. It doesn't seek vengeance. Jesus is rejected every day because his way is a way of loss rather than a way of gain. Jesus is rejected every day, even though his way is the only solution to our broken hearts and our darkened minds. You know, Barabbas and uh, Jesus were accused of the same crime. Sedition, insurrection, treason. Barnabas was a revolutionary who has directly challenged Roman rule. He called people to vengeance and violence And then promised to take down the Roman Empire. And it was going on. It was was happening. Can you imagine what it was like for Barabbas to be pardoned? He was on death row, and deservedly so. And later that night, he was home eating with his family. At the time, he probably had no idea that he was in the middle of a Christological metaphor. (laughs) that he had been pardoned. And Jesus, who didn't deserve any of it, was going to die in His place. He would go on to call people to violence and to vengeance in and, and an attempt to take down the Roman Empire. And you know what Jesus promised the people? He promised that He would not use His power in this way. He showed monumental, unequaled power Power would easily smoke the Roman Empire. And he promised to not do that. He promised to lay down his life. He promised to trust the spirit of humility in the followers that he had, in, the, in, the, in the, those that are loving of God to bring peace through forgiveness and a lifelong pursuit of the hearts of men rather than a swift work of the swords of men. That's what Jesus promised. So is it any wonder that they chose Barabbas? We choose Barabbas. We do. The good causes of the world resort increasingly on shouting down opponents or using viral technical means to destroy them, ironically justified by the goodness of the cause. Most of the solutions of today's world reflect the promises of power and they justify violence. Whether the president of the country now, past, future, whatever, CEOs of country, all the people of power operate from a place of position of power. They're either bullies or they act like bullies. And they seek to draw others in with empty promises of personal prosperity and power. <laughs> Please, do not put me in a political camp. This applies to all leaders. All, all of Anywhere. It's about power. It's about crushing somebody else to get what you want And promising everyone else that they come along with your power structure that you'll get what you want. That's the world we live in. We choose types of Barabbases over and over and over again. Jesus is calling men and women to see the truth their own shortcomings the own sicknesses in their heart the well disguised greed and selfish agendas that we all have it doesn't exist only at the top we are ineffectively trying to find what we long for but god tells us you're damaging yourself and others along the way you cannot find what you're looking for by belonging and 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 giving your loyalty and your allegiances to the tribes of this world. You can't find what you're looking for by gaining the significances that you get through the approvals of this world. You can't find what you're looking for. Uh, You can't find peace through the addictive escapes that give you some relief momentarily. You can't find what you're looking for through the awards that are gained through ethical compromise or the vilification of others. But we do, and when we do, we choose Barabbas. We choose some alternative that can forcefully get us what we want. It's basically the same temptation Jesus faced in the desert. An enticement to power and prestige and possession. Possession. The people, the Jewish people, they want to replace Roman power and oppression with their own power and oppression. And like I said, Jesus wasn't using His demonstrated unequaled power to crush enemies and reward followers with the plunder. He just wasn't. We all choose Barabbas. We're all tempted to choose Barabbas. And in large measure, we don't even know we're doing it. We are blind in many ways to the way we choose. And Jesus is going to say it. In just a few days, in just a few chapters, He's going to say it. He's going to say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And He isn't referring to the crucifixion. He's not saying they don't know that they're crucifying Me. They know that they're crucifying. What He's saying is, they don't know that they're rejecting the only way to true flourishing life and humanity. They don't know that they're choosing destruction when they choose Barabbas. Jesus saying they don't know who they are. They don't know who they are. When I call them, I expect someone to answer and that's not who's answer. They don't know who they are. They don't know who they're following. They don't know who God is. They don't know what He can do. They don't know that they can trust Him. Jesus is saying when He says they don't know what they're doing is that they don't believe. They don't believe they believe that way will work they don't believe god can do what he says he's going to do what we what have we learned through mark through his narration through his depiction of jesus we learn about identity we learn who god is and we learn who we are what's the key What's the key for you and me? What's the key? How do we keep from choosing Barabbas and choose Jesus instead? How is it that we find God and enjoy what he offers? How do we join his ranks, his family, participate in the flourishing of humanity? How is it that we bring glory to God and good to our fellow man? Here's another way of asking the same question Where does Jesus lead people? Where does he lead us? What have we seen? He leads us to identity and belief. Mark chapter one. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. He said, "The time has come. the kingdom of have God has come near. you can choose it. It's for you to have repent and believe." the good news. John. A man who resonated with Jesus' heart so deeply says what many of us memorized decades ago. God, who is God? God, John says, loved the world so much that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus leads us. Mark depicted it beautifully and has he leads us to a knowledge of who God is. Who we are. When you follow Jesus, you get to know who God is. You, you become the person that answers the phone and when as soon as it starts speaking, you say, God, it's you! When you follow Jesus, you get to know who God is. You get to know who you are, whether you like it or not. And what it looks like to live a life of belief when you follow Jesus, you get to know God. You get to know you and you get to know how to live a life of belief. You know, Jesus knew God was good and merciful and just and right. And He shows us what a life looks like under those circumstances. He trusted Him. He knew that His true identity was, what his true identity was and what it is. And He knew what God said and, he, and that His ways, God's ways, are the only way to find your way. This is what Jesus knew. And that's what we find when we follow Him. You know what Jesus thought of himself? You ever think about this? You ever think about how Jesus felt? In that moment when Pilate said, Do you want to say anything to them? In that moment when he knew his closest friends were turning their backs on him, when the crowds were canceling him and his cause had crumbled to nothing. Do you know how he felt about himself? He felt great. He felt completely at peace, completely loved by God. He had no doubt about God's goodness and power, his sonship and the truth. And he was flowing with compassion for the very people that had turned their backs on him. Can you imagine? You can't imagine, because you've been there in the hardest times of your life, where do we go? We question God's existence. We question whether I belong. We question whether I'm valued. A life of belief does not lead there. A life of belief leads to the riches and the clothes and the beauty that God promises because He can provide it. A life of following Jesus leaves you completely at peace no matter what. He felt no shame. He was unmoved about where He belonged, unwavering in His knowledge of God's love, felt no bitterness toward those who rejected Him and hurt Him, and He was losing everything. Believing God, following Jesus, provides you with that same heart in increasing measure. What you long for, that kind of stability, that kind of foundation, comes from nowhere other than following Jesus. The One who knows God can introduce you to God, can show you what God does and can show you how to live a life of belief that leaves you here. Believing God, following Jesus, provides you with the same heart in increasing measure if you keep believing and following no matter what. Rejecting any attitude and any action that's contrary to who God is. You don't compromise God's attitudes, God's actions, the way Jesus is to empower some capacity on this earth. It never justified. Never. Believing is believing who God is what He's about, what He does, and a life of belief. Look at nearly every psalm, every prophet, every Old Testament history, every Gospel scenario, every first church circumstance in Acts, every apostolic letter and teaching, everywhere throughout the Gospel, you will find endless circumstances from the trivial to the tragic and within them all you will see the people of God swiftly and inexplicably believing look all through the bible and you will find myriad circumstances from the from the meaningless almost to the to the to the magnificent and magnificently difficult, and in the midst of whatever it is—life-threatening circumstances, loss, poverty—you find the people of God, one in a one-step self-improvement program, belief. And that's our call. That's the call. That's the call of Jesus. That's the message of Mark. With clear-eyed. God-given view of how poor we are apart from God. We believe. Do you believe? We believe. Beyond rationality. We choose to believe that God is who He says He is. He can do what Jesus says He does and He can make us the shame-free, guilt-free, pride-free, greed-free, self Free, generous, grateful, prayerful, restful, peaceful, loving, blessing that we are. If you believe in the midst of no matter what the circumstances bring, Jesus' followers are defined most clearly by one thing. Are you? Do you believe? No matter what, if you do, you're on your way. You're on your way to something very special, something indescribable. The life that you are meant to live, the person you are meant to be. Let me have you stand. I'm going to read a blessing over you. This is from John. <clears throat> Pray with me. Receive from the God of the universe. Take the call. Would you take the call, please? Pick up the phone. And see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us, it is that not, does not know Him. Dear friends, we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but what we know is that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Amen. Can you amen? Amen. Believe, church. Believe.